Good morning, Redeemer. It's good to be with you today. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3. It might take some time to get there, but uh, we'll get there soon enough. Now, Kendra tells me I have um, some strange memories. I remember a lot of different kinds of things, but, but I, I think she does too. So if you've had a conversation with her several months ago, she will not remember a word that y'all talked about. But she'll remember what she was wearing. And she'll remember what you were wearing, like to a T. It's, it's strange. Uh, but she says, I remember a lot of things about football. So I want to talk about football this morning. <laughs> no, not that game last night, though I'd love to talk about that game last night. Uh, it was January of 1990. I was eight years old. And I was at home watching my San Francisco 49ers play the LA Rams in the NFC Conference Championship game for a right to go to the Super Bowl. They ended up winning that game and the Super Bowl. But at point, one point in that game, Joe Montana hits John Taylor down the sideline for 18 yards, yes, I remember, into the end zone for a touchdown. Out comes the kicking team. Cameras behind the kicker, I see the goalpost, and I see a guy in the stands behind the goalpost holding up a sign. And if you've watched sports, you've probably seen this sign before as well. The sign said in big black letters, John 3, 16. Now I'm eight years old, and I'm thinking... I think that's a verse. Like I, my mom had been taking me and my sisters to church. I've been learning a little bit. I'd, I've been going to Awana. I think I know what that verse says. So I go get my paperback Bible that my mom had bought me. I flip through the pages, and I come to the Gospel of John. I find chapter 3, verse 16, and it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You ever hear that verse? Have you heard of that verse? I'd venture to say you likely have. It's a popular one. And for good reason, right? It's a fantastic verse. And you saw it everywhere. Coffee mugs, greeting cards, and on signs in the stands at football games. It was so popular that not only did people in the church know that verse, but also those who would claim no religious affiliation. That was 1990. But it's not 1990 anymore. And it might be accurate to say another verse has now taken its place. You see, in Matthew 7, 1, during his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells the crowd, do not judge, or you too will be judged. You ever heard of that verse? I'd venture to say that you have. It seems like I hear that verse a lot, uh, and not only from professing Christians, but also from people who claim no religious affiliation at all. Now, our intent isn't 
this morning to explain the meaning of Matthew 7.1. Nor is it to point out that most who quote that verse and tell you not to judge has actually just judged you. Nor is it to point out that four verses later, Jesus actually gives us advice on how to judge. That's not our intent this morning. Rather, what I want to do today is expose us to the fact that if this is true, if it's truly the case that that verse is so popular, then we might be living in a day when Christianity is being repackaged a bit to present a God without wrath, who brings people without sin into a kingdom without judgment, through a Christ without a cross. You see, a lot of us want a Christianity about love and kindness and compassion, and yes and amen, those are great, beautiful Christian things. No one disagrees with those words. You come up and do a sermon on kindness, nobody's mad. Nobody's sending emails to Mitch on Monday. Do a sermon on love, nobody's mad. Everybody's, everybody in here is like, yeah-huh, mm-hmm, Amen. But here's the issue. Love has to be concrete. Love isn't vague. And if God is the author and creator of love, he gets to define it. And he revealed love this way. He tells us in verse John, this is how we understand love. Not that we love God, and that's a good thing because we can't love God perfectly, but that God loved us, and he reveals his love in this way. He sends his son Jesus to be the one who died for our sins. That's love. And so a Christianity presented without sin, without judgment, and without a cross, that's not love at all. We've been in a series called Ten Essential Truths. Uh, Ten Essential Truths about our faith, truths to wrap our minds around and, and, and enliven our hearts by. We've looked at the doctrine of God, a holy, loving, Trinitarian God, who has made himself known to us. We've looked at the doctrine of Scripture, its revelation, its authority, its inspiration. We've looked at the doctrine of angels and demons and Satan. And hopefully we are heeding the advice of C.S. Lewis to not disbelieve in their existence, but also not to take an excessive and unhealthy interest in them, right? And last week, Pastor Mitch did a wonderful job outlining the doctrine of man. How all humans, every man, woman, and child, are dignified and created in his image and designed to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And now this morning, we take a humbling yet necessary look at the doctrine of sin. It's a doctrine that many seem embarrassed by or seem to downplay or just want to explain away in such a way that would seem foreign to how the Bible explains it. But if the basic message of our faith is redemption in Christ, which it is, then we've got to ask, why do we even need to be redeemed? If the basic message of our faith is that Jesus saves, which it is, then we've got to ask, what do we save from? Why do we even need saving in the first place? I mean, I'm a good person, right? We all are. I've never hurt anybody. I've only lied a little bit. 
I only steal my neighbor's Wi-Fi. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the uh, popular Welsh minister from last century, said, Man will never have an adequate conception of the doctrine of salvation unless he first is clear regarding the doctrine of sin. So we've got to get it right. We've got to get sin right. So my hope is we get a bit clearer today, that we leave this room a bit clearer on sin. I think it'd be helpful if we first define it define sin, and then explain where it came from, and then point out what that means for you and for me. And hopefully, as a result, we could marvel at the grace and mercy that God provides to us in His Son, Jesus Christ. So, a lot of people call the study of sin hamartiology. It comes from the Greek term hamartia, which effectively means to miss the mark. Right? It's an archery term. Somewhat, somebody releases their arrow, shoots, misses the target, they err. They hamarshed. So as it relates to sin, we've got to ask, well, what's that mark that we're missing? What's the bullseye for our life that we're missing when we sin? But before we answer that, I always find it helpful when uh, defining words, sometimes to define words, what words are not. Or, or to ask uh, people... Uh, who have some unbiblical definitions of words. That always helps me define words. So, some like to define sin as mistakes, right? Like forgetting to pay a bill, or dropping a fly ball, or blowing a 28-3 to point lead. Or coming home from the grocery store with uh, diced tomatoes instead of petite diced tomatoes like she asked, right? Although I would never. Others describe sin in a more personal, vague sense, like not fulfilling your potential. Not fulfilling your potential. That we're born with a purpose, they say, a mission. And if we're not continually learning and growing and reaching, then we're in sin. If we're not becoming all that we can be, like the old army slogan, be all that you can be. If we're not (laughs) being all that we can be on this earth, then we are truly missing the mark. We're missing our mark. Because it's subjective. One popular author, uh, William Paul Young, you may have heard of him. He wrote the bestseller, The Shack. He wrote another book called Lies We Believe About God. And I like books like this. Like, hey, tell me what what I'm believing correctly and not believing correctly. In that book regarding sin, he says sin is indeed a kind of missing the mark. But here's the lie, so says Young. Here's the lie that we believe. That mark that we miss is not God's moral perfection, but rather the truth of your being. And what does the truth of your being look like? God. You're you're made in the image of God. Everybody in here is made in the image of God. It's the Imago Dei we found out in Genesis 126. You were made in the image of God, and the truth of your being looks like God. Therefore, since we have all been made in the image of God, nobody can ever be separated from him. 
Sin can't separate us from him. We're all like God. Sin can't separate us from God. That's impossible. Now, I always try to be as charitable as I can be with others by the grace of God. I'm learning to give the benefit of the doubt when I hear arguments. I really try to understand arguments when they're being made, whether I agree or disagree, no matter what we're talking about. I hope you never hear me speak ill of others when I agree or disagree. So let me speak as charitably as I can to the words of William Paul Young. That is utter rubbish. It would appear that to Young, sin's effects aren't all that serious or that sin would even exist at all. It's the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. He declares to God's people in Isaiah 59 2, your iniquities, which is just another word for sin, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That sounds serious. You see, our status as God's image bearers, which we should all rightly affirm, is not at odds with our status as sinful and needing salvation. They are not mutually exclusive. And our sin, as we just heard from the prophet Isaiah, does indeed separate us from God. That's bad. It's real bad. So I'd just like to ask you, do you fall victim to believing these misconceptions, these lies, that sin is just making a mistake, or that sin is not fulfilling your potential, or that it's missing the mark of the truth of your being? Those beliefs could truly be a matter of life and death. Mitch has been noting how Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology defines some of the essential truths that we've been talking about the last few weeks. And here's how Grudem defines sin. He says, sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or attitude. Any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, a respected confession of faith, defines sin as any want of or conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And to drive it home even further, Michael Horton in his Pilgrim Theology says, sin is what God does not want done. You'll notice an overarching theme in these definitions that sin is in relation to God and his truth and moral law. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 3 that those who have sinned have fallen short of the glory of God. That's what we fall short of. Sin is God-centered rather than human-centered. Now, that doesn't mean we don't sin against each other. As we grow together as a church, we're going to sin against each other. That happens. We're family. You'll see that in two weeks. Family gets together. There's a lot of sin. But when we reduce sin to the horizontal dimension or just our interhuman relationships, then sin becomes just these negative behaviors that we can easily manage. Don't talk about politics. Don't talk about sports or anything that could bring up arguments. Or just a failure to live up to one's potential. 
But if sin was only against our neighbor, then it's our neighbor's judgment that we would have to endure, not God's. I was a sophomore in college, and at the end of my floor in the dorm that I lived in in Norman, Oklahoma, there was uh, this big room, about maybe a quarter of the size of this room. I thought that was big for a dorm. And it had a few couches and a couple of tables, and I would go down there to study at times and to read and uh, play wheelchair football with the guys. That's a thing, wheelchair football, it's fun. And uh, my wife says I can vividly remember certain things like this. I remember the day I was in that room, and I had been reading a book by a guy named R.C. Sproul. You may have heard of him. It was a book called The Holiness of God. I was in chapter 6, Weird memory. And I read something that stopped me dead in my tracks. Listen to Sproul. He said, sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life itself. Have you ever considered the deeper implications of the slightest sin of the most minute peccadillo? What are we saying to our creator when we disobey him at the slightest point? We are saying no to the righteousness of God. We are saying, God, your law isn't any good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want to do, not what you command me to do. I looked up from that page. I was 19 years old, zealous in my faith, still very young, very naive, and it hit me. I mean, it hit me. The Lord right there showed me the gravity of what sinning against him looked like. That the slightest sin is an act of defiance against a cosmic authority. That sin is a revolutionary act. It's an act of rebellion in which I am setting myself in opposition to my creator, to the one to whom I owe everything. <laughs> an insult to his holiness. You see, if we are made in the image of God, like we talked about last week, and if part of what that means is that we are vice regents over creation, meaning we have dominion over creation, we represent God to creation, when we sin as image bearers of God, we are saying to the whole creation, to all of nature under our dominion, to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field, this is how God is. This is how your creator behaves. You look at me, you see the character of God. He's a liar. A thief. He's proud. He's lazy. A murderer. A slanderer. God is all these things that I am doing. When we sin, we commit treason of cosmic proportion. Do you view sin this way? Do you see the cosmicness of it? Do you see it as an act of treason against your holy creator? You see, in a therapeutic world, sinfulness is no longer falling short of the glory of God, but rather falling short of your own potential. But church, the stakes are much higher than that. It could truly be a matter of life and death. 
well, to bring further clarity on this doctrine, it, it would be helpful to go to its origin. And so I know you're there. I told you to go to Genesis 3. I told you we'd get there. It, if we can call what happened in Genesis 1 and 2 creation, then Genesis 3 describes the next element of the biblical story. It's simply called the fall. The fall. You see, a major feature of any story is its central conflict. It's the thing that goes wrong and it needs to be fixed, right? Marty McFly needs Doc Brown to fix the time machine so he can go back to the future. Uh, Thanos initiates a plan to gather all the Infinity Stones. So what are the Avengers going to do? And in the biblical story, which really is our story, while Adam and Eve were experiencing shalom in the garden, a catastrophe occurs. It was a magnificent garden. It was perfect in every way. The name itself, Eden, uh, is meant to evoke pleasure, delight, right? Adam and Eve walk with God. They have each other. They work the garden, and the garden provides all they need. But there is a prohibition. In chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord God commands the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Don't eat from that tree. That's all they've got to do. What could possibly go wrong? And we're then introduced to the serpent. Chapter 3, verse 1, look at it with me. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Well, we're not told where this talking serpent comes from. We find out later in Scripture in Revelation 12 that it is Satan himself that stands behind this serpent in some sense. What we are told is that he is crafty, right? Crafty. Does that word bring a negative connotation to you? It does to me, right? Slithering, sneaky. But this word, depending on the context, could either be positive or negative, actually. It's a word sometimes translated prudent. 
Proverbs 12, 23, a prudent man conceals knowledge. Proverbs 14, 18, the prudent are crowned with knowledge. But what we just read, this serpent here is not described in that way. It, it could be that before the serpent became who he is, he may have been crowned with prudence, a good thing. But in his rebellion, that prudence became craftiness. It, it's possible that very same virtue that he had before his fall was actually a strength that became twisted. The great fictional detective Sherlock Holmes, he's riffing on this concept. He says, ah me, it's a wicked world. And when a clever man turns his brains to crime, it is the worst of all. It's the clever man who, when he uses his brains, oof, watch out. I've, I've always enjoyed crime movies. Maybe it's a sin in me. I don't know. Um, movies like Ocean's Eleven, Catch Me If You Can, The Italian Job. I love these movies. I'm blown away by the cleverness of crime. I find myself watching these movies and, and often saying, wow, that was really smart. But when you watch Cops or Live PD, you know what you don't say? Wow, that was really smart. You never say that. The serpent, he's smart. Cunning, crafty. He approaches Eve and he begins with a question. It's a question that's filled with poison. Did God really say that? Like, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? It's a question with just the right amount of skepticism. Like, can you really believe that God would say that? There's no way. I mean, look at all this food. And he told you, you can't eat any of it? As if God is some kind of cosmic killjoy. Eve, God exists to spoil your fun. You want to stack? God says no. You want to do this? God says no. You want to do that? God says no. But Eve tries to stand her ground. She, she tells the serpent, no, 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 we just can eat from that tree. Not from any tree, just that tree. Nor can we touch it or we'll die. Well, if we go back to the original command in chapter 2, God never said anything about not touching it. You see, this serpent has turned Eve into an exaggerator. She's adding to the word of God, and that is not a good place to be. Putting words into his mouth. He then, the serpent accuses God of exaggerating himself. Psh, die? Really? You're not going to die? That's ridiculous. Eve, you know why he's saying that? Because he knows when you eat from that tree, your eyes will open and you will be like God. And you'll know good and evil. You see, God, he pretends to care for you, Eve. But he's holding out on you. He's covering his back. He only protects himself. When he smiles at you, that's just a front. 
He's keeping you down. I mean, don't you want to fulfill your potential, Eve? Don't you want to be like God? Don't you, Eve? I think that's smart. <laughs> that's a tempting affair. I think we all kind of want to be like God at times, rather than with God. We want to be the one who determines good and evil. We want to rule the earth on our own. That, that's so clever. And in our sinful hearts, it starts to make sense. And this is what sin does. It entices you with the right words. It promises you the world. J.C. Ryle said that sin will rarely present itself to us in its true colors. It never says, I'm your deadly enemy and I want to ruin you forever in hell. Oh no, sin comes to us like Judas with a kiss. With an outstretched hand and flattering words. Well, who knows how long the serpent waited before slithering into that garden, but maybe, just maybe, when he heard God give that prohibition, he may have thought, that's my ticket. It's go time. It lies in wait. It waits for the right time, and then it pounces. This is what sin does. We learn in Genesis 4, the very next chapter, that sin is crouching at the door. It's like a vagabond looking for a place to settle like a place in our hearts. And if we let it, if we don't kill sin, it's like a squatter looking to live wherever spaces open up, ready to devour. A few days before Halloween, I came across a thread on Twitter that ultimately went viral, all right? It was this guy telling a story from when he was younger, and I'll just warn you to brace yourself. He said, everyone's telling scary stories for Halloween, so I'll talk about something that happened to me when I was a kid because, hey, trauma never gets old. Hashtag scary stories. When I turned nine, I realized I could sneak downstairs after everyone was asleep and eat anything I wanted in the fridge. No one ever noticed. I could make a peanut butter and mayo sandwich, eat leftover pizza, scrape off the icing from birthday cakes, Cakes, as long as I was careful, I could do anything. Creeping down was the hardest part. I had to navigate the pitch dark house all the way downstairs in total darkness like a tiny ninja. Well, one night in May 1981, we ordered from the fish and shrimp house, my favorite. I waited until everyone was asleep and crept downstairs to eat the leftover sweet and sour pork. It took forever. I finally stepped into the total dark den and let my guard down. All of a sudden, I heard a fork click on the counter. I froze. The microwave clock light showed the outline of a man sitting at our kitchen counter. He couldn't see me, but I saw him, a skinny guy, eating our leftovers and drinking our milk from the carton. I can't explain how terrifying it is for someone to be in your house. I slowly backed away, crept upstairs, and woke up my mom and dad. But they made way too much noise and took way too long, and by the time they got downstairs, the kitchen was empty. Everyone said I read too many horror comics, so they blew off what I said. But no way was I pouring milk on my cereal anymore. I started to track the position of everything in the kitchen. One day, the paper napkin holder was on the wrong side of the counter. 
Another day, a mug was in the sink that was not there the night before. My bedroom door didn't lock, so I kept a steak knife under my pillow. And I must have stabbed myself in the hand a thousand times, checking to make sure it was there. Then in August, I was in my room reading when I looked up. There's an AC vent over my bed. And behind the vent, a pair of eyes were watching me. I freaked and I went crazy until my parents searched our attic and the crawl space under our house. Nothing. I wasn't very popular for a few weeks. The last week of August, our house started to smell. One night, rice fell out of the vent over my bed. Maggots. The AC people said something had probably crawled into our vents and died. Turns out, what had crawled into our vents and died was the guy. We lived in an old house with lots of space between the walls and, and big ducks. He'd been living in them since May, at least. He'd put a foam pad beside my bedroom vent so he'd be comfortable while he watched me. The police said he'd made lots of drawings. But when I asked, they pretended they hadn't said anything. No one ever identified him. He was buried at John Doe. To this day, I can't look inside the vents and houses, but sometimes when I'm at somebody's house, I smell a little B.O. from the central A.C. And I wonder who's living back there in their ducks. Who's living in the dark. If that story creeps you out, that's the point. This is what sin does. It lies in wait, it lurks. Who's living in the dark? Who's living in your ducks? It truly could be a matter of life and death. So you might be saying, whoa, you're making this way too personal. I mean, I thought you were talking about Adam and Eve. That was them. I'm, I'm, I'm me. I mean, I was not in the garden. Well, you might want to turn with me to Romans 5. Romans chapter Five. You don't have to if you get there. Um, Adam and Eve's story is actually our story as well. When, when Adam and Eve committed sin in the garden, when they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their nature was changed that day. They became sinners, people incapable of sinlessness. And that sinful nature was passed on to every human being who would ever be born. Look at me with, with, look with me at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that one man being Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. That nature was passed on to every human being. Every uh, Monday evening this past fall, I've, uh, we've gone to watch Carter play football, and it's been a lot of, lot of fun. It was his first season of junior high football. Uh, I love watching my son play football, and if it seems like a lot of my illustrations are football, I apologize, but that's just what I like. Um, before every game, you'd have both teams on the field warming up, right, doing some quick drills, some last-minute prep, one team over here, one team over there. Then each team would send two guys to the middle of the field to do what? Meet the refs, right? 
and they'd have the coin toss. Coin gets flipped, one team calls heads or tails, and once that happens, the outcome is sealed. If the Beckendorf Bears lost a coin toss, Carter can't come screaming in from the sidelines, yelling, wait a minute, I didn't choose heads. I wanted tails. Right? Tails never fails. That's not what I would have called. He can't do that. Those two bears who called heads, they represent all the bears, including Carter. In the same way, in the garden, Adam was our representative, and that was by God's design. Because the entire human race is descended from one man, a man who rebelled against God, we have all inherited his sinful nature. It's what many call original sin, though inherited sin might be a better term. We are all, to use a biblical phrase, in Adam. We are in Adam. And before you start thinking you have made a better choice, called a better coin toss, I tell my boys never blame a teammate, so let's not do that either. You see, whether we like it or not, you and I are part of a highly dysfunctional family that stretches all the way back to Adam. We all bear the family likeness. Paul says in Romans 3.10 that there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short. We all miss this mark that God sets. And because we inherit it, like David says in Psalm 51, he says, I was brought forth in iniquity, in sin did my mo mother conceive me. Because that's true, sin is not so much something that we do, it's something we are. You and I were born with a serious heart problem. It's in our DNA. It's in our natural state. And despite what we would buy at Whole Foods, natural isn't always good for you. Listen, we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's an important distinction. And so here are a few results of sin. One, sin breaks the world. I mean, it just breaks the world. Adam's sin contaminates all of creation. It impacts everything under their authority. It disrupts the flourishing of the earth beneath their feet. Where once the earth flourished and it was awesome, now thorns and thistles come up from the cursed ground. The human community now plunges into a downward spiral of violence. Adam blames Eve. Cain murders Abel. Lamech's a dangerous murder. And by the time you get to the days of Noah, the earth is filled with violence. It's just covered with violence. It only takes three chapters, y'all. It takes three chapters from shalom to sin unleashing its fury. Sin is why you pull weeds in the summer. It's why schoolwork and work work is so hard. And it's why 50 inches of rainfall can turn into flood water that slowly overtakes your house and there's nothing you can do about it. Romans 8 says creation is groaning. Groaning to made new. A second thing it does. Sin not only breaks the word, it breaks you. It breaks us. 
It doesn't just corrode creation, it corrodes us. Sin's favorite place to take residence is the human heart, those crawl spaces. And it doesn't discriminate, not on race or color or age or gender or anything else. It eats away at our loves and our hopes and our dreams. It mixes them all up and puts them back in the wrong place in the wrong order. It twists the way that we think and the way that I feel about myself and others and, it, and about pretty much everything. It results in feeling fear, shame, and guilt. You remember the first thing Adam and Eve did after they ate the fruit? They knew they were naked, so they clothed themselves. Shame, guilt. The Lord comes into the garden and asks, where are you? As if he didn't know. They hide. That's fear. Sin makes us think that everything centers on us and that we're the center of the world, but neither Adam nor Eve nor you nor I were ever meant to be the center of this world that God made. And that's essentially what sin is, idolatry. It's idolatry. Because of sin, we want to worship and idolize the wrong things, namely ourselves. And last sin. Last. Sin breaks the world, it breaks you, and it breaks your relationship with God. This is our biggest nightmare. You see, God in his perfect holiness cannot and will not have sin near him. He will not stand for rebellion, and he does not allow rebels in his kingdom. If you eat the forbidden fruit, you get death. And so with Adam's bite, death entered into God's perfect creation. Paul continues in Romans 5. He says that the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. That one trespass led to condemnation for all men. He says in the next chapter, the wages of sin is death. You see, first on the scene in the garden was spiritual death, which means that Adam and everyone after him stand separated from the king. And because of this spiritual death, Adam, Adam and Eve, they get banished from the garden. They can't stay there, and neither can we. Like the first couple, we stand outside of God's love if we are still in rebellion against him. And spiritual death leads to physical death. Our life is like a clock running out of time before the alarm goes off. And then sin's ugly friend, physical death, will be waiting to take us from this world. But physical death isn't the end to end. It's more like the end of the beginning. You see, life continues after death, a life that is eternal. And this means that those who suffer spiritual death will be separated from God forever. And we do that in a place the Bible calls hell. It's a place with no hope, no joy, no life. And that's ultimately where sin leads. That's where sin takes us. It truly is a matter of life and death. But this isn't the end of the story. <laughs> or at least it doesn't have to be. Um, a, a, a couple months ago, Mitch sent me a message. He said, hey, um, I'm going to start a series on ten essential truths. Ten essential truths on the faith. So I'm going to do God, and, and then uh, Scripture, and then angels, and demons, and Satan, and then man. Uh, and then you're going to do sin, all right? <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> so then I start looking at it, and um, trying to get my thoughts straight. And I'm thinking, man, I'm, I'm really going to be the bad guy here. So a couple weeks ago, I'm, I, I go to Mitch, I'm like, hey, um, 
the week after we do sin, you're going to do Christ and then salvation, thank God. How much hope do you want me to give? Hey, well, he looked at me straight, straight in the eyes and said, you can get, a, get you a pastor that says this. 100%, brother. Sin is not the end of the story. It's not. You see, God has a plan to turn sin's power into its defeat. Shortly before driving Adam and Eve out of the garden, God gives a hint at his coming grace. That's awesome. Back in Genesis 3, verse 15, he gives a promise to the serpent. So before he addresses Adam and Eve, he's got some business to do. He tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's a verse known as the Proto-Evangelium. It's the initial announcement of the gospel. If you think that the gospel is only found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, your view of the gospel is too small. The gospel's bigger, it's brighter. Found everywhere. And it really gets ramped up right here in Genesis 3.15. There is a plan. He tells this snake, look, you may think you've won, but you don't get the last laugh. There is one who is coming who will make things right again. You might bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And I don't know if you've ever had a foot injury or a head injury, but I'm assuming you know which is worse. He will crush the head of the serpent. He will destroy sin. He will conquer death once and for all. You see, to draw out sin's poison, God sends his son to drink that poison so you don't have to. And I know we've been faced with a lot of bad news this morning, but church, that is some good news. More on that next week. Let's pray. Lord God, we, uh, we pray together right now. Would you give us humility? Humility to acknowledge our sin before you. We know there's no one in this room without a past marked by sin. And we know there, there's no one in here without a future. And with Christ, that future is full of hope. Will you help us to be humble before you, to trust in your ways, to, uh, to trust in your word, to, to follow your word by your grace, to, to, to trust in your grace so that we can obey you and not obey sin. For those of us who are caught up in sin that we just can't seem to shake, will you help us flee? Flee from that sin? Will you help us put it to death? To strangle it and not give it any breath? And for any look that we take at our sin, will you help us to take ten looks at Christ? For the person in here who does not know you, will you help them see that Jesus Christ is everything they need? that he can be their true satisfaction and snap those chains that keep us so close to sin. Father, we know we have a great need for Christ, but we also have a great Christ for our need. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.